now as we're making our way to the book of James. We started this study just a bit after Easter Sunday, and of course we're just speeding right along, aren't we? And we're into chapter 3, and we're looking today at verse 13 down through verse 18 together. And what strikes me about this is that here is a very, very powerful passage that equips you and equips me to be able to make good decisions in life. And today, if you're facing medical decisions, financial decisions, family-related decisions, or something very personal, my hope, my prayer, I did a lot of this on my knees, is that this study will minister to your heart this morning. Who is wise and understanding among you? Yes. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we're going to be looking very carefully and contrasting the sources of wisdom in this world. Trying to better understand where to go for the wisdom we need to make the decisions that are required to live well and wisely before our sovereign God. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we're coming into your presence now, we see that you are the ultimate source of wisdom. You are the ultimate wise decision maker. We do not escape the fact that in eternity past, you and your triune wisdom established the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, to enter into this world, to die in our place. And we don't overlook the fact that when he entered this world in Bethlehem, the wise men made their way to Bethlehem. As should we. And then as Paul spoke of how the secularists views the cross and its foolishness, the wisdom from above looks down upon the sinfulness of humanity and knows that there needed to be a sacrifice. Two natures and one person. Totally divine, totally human, to serve as our substitute, to die in our place for our sins. The wisdom from below views it as foolishness, but the wisdom from above sees the need and addresses the need with the decision made in eternity past, worked out in time. 
And so what we're going to do, Father, as we contrast the wisdom from below with the wisdom from above and look at the sources of wisdom that seem to invade our own minds and hearts, what we need now is for you to warm our hearts, engage our minds, shape our wills. Come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was after a Sunday night service last year that had, after the service, a meeting to follow as often as a challenge on a long day. But somewhere in the latter part of the evening, I got home and I turned on the last quarter of Sunday night football. I love it. And some of the great announcers, Al Michael, and Chris Collinsworth were, were offering the, in the perspectives of the night. Michaels, of course, does the play-by-play, and Collinsworth, um, he offers the analyst role to us. And what fascinated me is that their booth, of course, as they're watching everything unfold on the field, is from above. In that fourth quarter, quarterback rolled back to pass, and evidently didn't see his primary receiver and missed the mark by, by a wide range. And immediately, Al Michaels shouts out in the form of a Christ, question to Chris Collins with, why didn't he see his receiver? He was wide open. Collinsworth, he's got this long draw in the way in which he responds to Michaels quick staccato-type question, said, well, Al, you see, he's down there, and we're up here. I jotted that story down immediately because I knew somewhere along the way we'd be in the book of James, and particularly in James chapter 3, and even more particularly in 13 through 18, where there seems to be the contrast of vantage points. There is a wisdom that comes from below that serves as a major competitor to the wisdom which is found from above. And the danger for you and me, if we fail to distinguish the two, is that we can assume that what we are getting in terms of wisdom is a wisdom from above when in reality it's a wisdom from below. Or to compound the issue all the more, to allow for a blending of the two and then Christianize the label over it. What we want to do is to dissect this passage. We want to be able to separate out the wisdom from below from the wisdom from above so that we are better equipped to make quality decisions on a daily basis. Food for thought. Spend a little time in the coming days considering the wisest of people that God, by his grace, has brought into your life. Find a way to have lunch or coffee or sit down with them and have them walk you through some of the most critical decisions they made in their life journey, how they came to those conclusions, why they decided as they decided, and look for a common thread throughout. 
James is a man who makes quality decisions. He's not dependent upon a wisdom from below. He draws from the wisdom from above, which is what we need to do as students, as co-workers, as parents and grandparents, as single people attempting to navigate solo, realizing that you're under the lordship of someone who ministers to you and walks beside you. Let's dig in. I want to draw out here two major contrasts and the distinctives associated. The first is found in verse 14 through 16. I can phrase it like this. The number one, I want you to note the distinctives of wisdom which comes from below. Now, in order to do that, we need a leading question. And James is good at that. He got it from his half-brother, Jesus. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now we pause and we ask, okay, God has placed me in a wonderful large community of believers. Multiple services. But not everybody, evidently, is wise because he's saying now to these believing Jews at this point, who among all the believers uh, is wise? In other words, you're going to have to be able to make a distinction between the wise, the unwise, and I suppose the otherwise as well. Well, anyways, here, he poses this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, because he's writing to Jewish believers at this point, and they are spread out due to persecution, their minds would go back to some of the great, great books of wisdom in the Old Testament. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And they would know that the word for wisdom in those books, chokmah from the Hebrew, means literally masterful understanding, skill, expertise. In other words, when you're faced with a crucial, critical decision in your singleness or married state, as a family, as a worker, as a boss, whatever, are you drawing from above masterful understanding, skill, and expertise because what you need is a different vantage point? You are standing here out on the horizontal, and what you desperately need is a wisdom from above, that which is of the vertical. So he poses this question because evidently not everybody in the Christian faith is distinguished by their wisdom. They will imbibe a number of opinions and a wide range of authors, but the question is, does it come from above? Now notice the response to that. If you're going to be seeking opinion, if you're seeking wisdom, here is one of the most clear evidences of this matter. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, we have been dealing with the matter of works in all these weeks, haven't we? But what I want you to do is to circle that word meekness, because as you'll hear Many a time over from various sources, meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's just the opposite. For what you find is, for example, a description in your Older Testament of Moses, who prior to his encounter at the burning bush, in fact, killed a man. He was was a very powerful man. 
Yet, as God got a hold of that life, what we find now in Numbers chapter 12 is that there's a description in verse 3 of Moses being the meekest of men. What does that mean? Literally, the word meek means power under control. In the time period in which James wrote this letter, the reader would have been recognizing the fact that there were at least three examples of power under control, utilizing the word meek. For example, when a physician prescribes medication, an overdose of that medicine means its power out of control could lead to death. On the other hand, if this, if this patient follows the prescription, we have power under control that medicine serves its purpose and has productive results. The medicine in that time period was known as meek. For somebody out on the farm who was using ox to be able to uh, plow the field, an animal that was out of control is contrasted to one whose power was under control, and the yoke was described as that which is meek. In other words, it controlled the movements of this powerful beast so that it was productive rather than destructive. Now, begin to ask yourself, where, in what realms am I strong? Maybe, for example, you are quick verbally. Is your tongue out of control? Or is your tongue under control? Maybe you find yourself functioning impulsively. Can you counter that? Because your natural tendency is to move quickly when, in fact, James himself had just challenged us in a prior chapter that we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, one quick followed by two slows. There's a third example of that time period, and it's the wind. The wind out of control, tornado-like force. But the wind under control takes a sailboat from the shoreline of Wisconsin across to Michigan. In all these cases, it's either under control or out of control. You and I live in a world that appears out of control, but we have a sovereign one. The second member of the Trinity is seated at the right hand of the Father and has been described as meek, power under control. He has this world, you see, under his control and under his authority. And now we find our model here, by his good conduct, let him show his works in, he's got this thing under control. Speaking of you and me, if we in fact are viewed as wise people, is your tongue under control? Are your emotions under control? Are you managing your relationships effectively? Are you working with the wisdom principles from the inside out? Or are you simply sampling the opinions of the culture from the outside in? So now we've got this contrast here in this world between power out of control and power under control, don't we? And we've got to be able to say that the wise person is distinguished by this reigning in and management of this power. What he does now as he poses the question and then provides the answer 
is leads us into this first distinguishing feature of wisdom, which comes, interestingly enough, from below. Camp on verse 14 with me. I want you to notice the conditions of wisdom which come from below. There are two. You spot them? In verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy, number one, and selfish ambition, number two, where? In your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. What I want you to see here is that the conditions are, number one, bitter jealousy, number two, selfish ambition, but both of which are coexisting within the heart. Bitter jealousy comes from a word that describes that which is pointed and sharp. In other words, something is continuously keeping your inner life at edge. What keeps your inner life at edge? A bitter jealousy is the longing to possess what someone else supposedly owns. Though God is the owner of all things and we're simply managers. On the other hand, selfish ambition means to long for that which we do not have. What they share in common is the tension of the have-have-not of life. And the tension of the have-have-not within the heart of the individual can so consume the individual that their life is out of control rather than under control, as evidenced by the decisions that they make, the attitudes that they demonstrate, the relationships that seem to start coming apart at the seams. Now, what God wants us to do at this point is to take a good, hard look at these examples. Is there any bitter jealousy within your heart? And is it finding commonplace with a selfish ambition in your heart? And realize that the centerpiece to all this is the heart. The issue of the heart is the heart of the matter. The Greek word here for heart is cardia. We get cardiology. Past days of this week, Pam and I had that opportunity. I talked about an illustration of a month plus back where we did find that stethoscope for our second child. And as he's heading back to medical school this week, we squeezed a few moments, and what we did was we gave it to him in the dining room, and his wife was standing inside. Um, gave him a hug. It's a special moment. And he opened it up. It's a, it's a, it's a stethoscope meant for cardiology. So he obviously put it on and began to listen to his wife's heartbeat. Put it on her and she listened to his. What he's doing at this point is that he's examining that which is from within. What James is now doing for you and for me is to get us to begin to examine that which is from within. Because that which is from within shapes that which is from without. And we've got to make absolutely certain that that which is found from within is that which is from above, not which is that from below. That which is from below allows for this coexistence. 
of this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which continuously pokes the heart and keeps the person from making good decisions. But when we are drawing from that which is above, that does not exist there. And so we look carefully and try to understand how that which is within shapes that which is from without. Victor Hugo, the story 93. A ship's caught in the storm. There's this frightened crew. Here's a terrible crashing sound below. The men want to know what it is. Cannon has broken loose, crashing against the ship's side. And with every smashing blow of the sea, two men at risk of their lives, they go down, fasten it down again. They know that the unfastened cannon is more dangerous than the raging storm. But we have to bear in mind that when we are looking carefully at our lives, very often that which is within is more dangerous than the raging storm from without. Look very carefully. Take your biblical stethoscope and apply it now to your heart. Listen to the rhythms. Is there anything arrhythmic here? And now begin to pose the serious questions about the true quality of your heart. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where in your hearts, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Yet he tells us in James 1 verse 18 that our salvation came via the truth. And so if we are allowing for this coexistence, then what we have now allowed for is that from above and that from below to co-mingle within the heart, creating such inner conflict, it will produce outer conflict, which he gets to as we'll study next week. Where there is inner conflict, it will then produce outer conflict because we're imbibing a combination of that which is from below with that which is from above. So he wants us now to make these distinctions clear. And as we do so, we move from the conditions found in verse 14 to what will now appear on the screen, the descriptions of verse 15. What he will now tell you and tell me about the wisdom that we're drawing from below is that it's marked by three major descriptives. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, number one, unspiritual, number two, demonic, number three. Break them down. Now, the wisdom from below is basically earthly. In other words, it has boundaries. It has limits. Now, let's say you're facing a critical decision at this point. And all the opinion you've gotten thus far is wisdom from below. What you'll have to bear in mind is that you are hearing counsel with limitation. Are you seeking out those who have a wisdom from above in the way in which they counsel in the matter of decision-making? Is it simply naturalistic? Or is it supernaturalistic, where God broke in with the ultimate wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ and offered Jesus as the substitute for our sins? 
God has placed eternity in our hearts, as Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so eternity is boundless. What we are desperately looking for is the infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Because our hearts are meant for such. And if we simply imbibe from that which is of below, then we are selling ourselves short, and we are operating on that which is limited and finite. And then you are dealing with the ultimate issues of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates that the grave does not offer boundaries or limitations to those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. He has placed eternity in your heart. It was a wise man who said that. So now, it's earthly. Second of all, it's unspiritual. And now what fascinates me is that the Greek word here for unspiritual, sukikas, comes from the word that we get psychology. Which means then that there are two types of psychologies. Simply put, a psychology from below and a psychology from above. What is interesting is that the psych in the word psychology has to do with the soul. If you then are seeking counsel from that which is from below, you are seeking counsel for your soul outside of the parameters of what God has revealed and the fact that God created your soul and Jesus died for that soul. On the other hand, if you are seeking wisdom from that which is from above, then you are seeking it from the very one who created that soul, infinite, eternal, unchangeable wisdom available to you through your word, God's word, but now you've got to be willing to apply it in the crucial, critical decisions that you are confronted with on a daily basis in life. Do you see why all this now is so significantly important when you're trying to make those decisions? Keep asking yourself, is that below or is that above? Below or above? when it comes to the source behind the opinion, the source behind the decision. And if that's not enough, thirdly, demonic. You know how in the Garden of Eden, the evil one approached Eve and posed a question to her. And that question was meant to separate her from God rather than for her to find herself aligned with God. And the idea is you will eventually... The argument is, you will be like God. Now, that which is from below is a quest to be like God naturalistically. But that which is from above, where God the Father sent Jesus into this world to die for our sins, is such that we see something supernaturally being expressed to you and expressed to me, and we realize now that what we are facing on a daily basis, is a tremendous sense of competition for your heart, soul, and mind between that which is from below and that which is from above. Where do you turn? From whom and from what do you draw to be able to gain the insights you need for the decisions that you make? 
You see, that which is earthly, number one, unspiritual, number two, demonic, number three, leaves this world globally and us as individuals personally in a state of confusion, which describes the world today. General Maxwell Taylor, retired as Army Chief of Staff, he told of seeing a rating report on an officer which said, quote, This officer is often confused when given conflicting orders. Quote, unquote. General Taylor wrote on the report, quote, Not suited for duty in Washington, D.C., Quote, unquote. What you will find, wisdom from below produces conflicting orders, conflicting opinions. But you will not find contradiction in God's word. You will find a complementary approach where views are offered from different angles, but it is all part of one singular source your sovereign God, from above. So now you look at the descriptions that are tied to the source you're considering. Remind yourself of the earthly slash unspiritual slash demonic and move yourself through this from the conditions of verse 14 to the descriptions of verse 15 to now the results of verse 16 where you and I are looping back to 14, that combination of jealousy and selfish ambition, aren't we? And we remind ourselves that for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, would you do this with me? Circle the word disorder, because it is the same Greek word which was used in in James 1 verse 8, to describe the double-minded man who's conflicted in his doubts, unstable in all his ways. This is an unstable man. Show me somebody who's unstable emotionally, and I want to probe the inner realm and try to understand, is there a wisdom from below? Or is there a wisdom from above? And to make it all the more complex, is it a combination of the two? And they're trying to allow wisdom from below and wisdom from above to coexist and somehow, some way, find a sense of peace and make quality decisions in the course of life. What God wants to say to you and to me is this. If you are conflicted within, it will lead to conflict from without. And that is the root behind this whole matter of disorder found in that particular verse. What we've got to understand is that this wisdom from above can't be limited. There's a stage we operate on. And if all you and I do is assume that the sum total of life is what appears on that stage, don't be surprised if God breaks in and he's got something to say to you off stage. Toscanini was a great symphony conductor. He was asked one of the most significant stories and experiences that he ever had in conducting his orchestra. He said it involved one of Beethoven's overtures where two climaxes were to be followed by a trumpet passage off stage. The first climax arrived, 
not a sound from the trumpet. Toscanini is known for his temper. He went on to the second climax, again, no trumpet. This time, he rushed off the stage. There he found his trumpet player struggling with the house security guard. And the guard is saying to the trumpet player, listen, I tell you, you can't play your trumpet back here, quote, unquote. When in fact, that was exactly where Toscanini had him positioned. Now, as far as that guard was concerned, all that was to take place was to take place on stage alone. But if he had understood the score of the composition, he would have known that there's something more than that which is on stage. There is something behind the scenes. What God does is that he opens the eyes of the person who seeks that which is from above to understand that while the naturalist sees the sum total of this world is simply the stage of life that they can see, taste, feel, and so on, there is a God from above who looks down upon you and me and breaks into all of this sends his son to die for our sins, and three days later raises him from the dead, and the naturalistic person can't quite figure out what to do with this story. The story of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Meanwhile, even the naturalistic person still has to cope with the fact that there's eternity in his heart, according to Solomon. What fascinates me about Solomon's writings is how many times in the book of Ecclesiastes he describes those who live under the sun. Sometimes you study one of my favorite books, Ecclesiastes. Look for the way in which people approach their decision-making based upon an under-the-sun philosophy of life alone. And don't take into account that which is above the sun. He's offering contrasting below and above in the way in which people approach their decisions of life. Sometimes people have got to reach a point in time when they have exhausted their resources. Then they look upward. Sherlock Holmes movie. Megan Basham in the World magazine tells of this aging man. He's desperate to right the wrongs of his past before slipping into senility. Throughout his life, he has simply lived from his wisdom from within, dissecting observable data. But Despite his towering intellect, his talent for discerning surface motives, she writes, has not helped him understand the deeper purposes that drive people. For all he sees, his logic cannot penetrate human nature. It's a below-the-sun logic, you see. It's wisdom from below But as this elderly man increasingly loses himself in this complex world, she tells us that in the closing scenes, Sherlock lifts his hands in a symbolic prayer-like posture, as if to say there is more to life. Now the way in which you and I go about living our lives is the prayer-like posture to a nasty, naturalistic, under-the-sun thinking community that there is more here than meets the eye. So now you contrast that, don't you? 
And you quickly now make the comparison to this second source of wisdom. Notice then with me here the distinctions of wisdom which come from above. 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure. First pure. Notice that's where it starts. It means literally free of contamination. Examine your humor. What you say from your lips reveals what takes place within your heart. Examine your actions. What takes place in the movement of the feet reveals what resides within the nature of the heart. The challenge is, if we blend the above and the below, we've got this mixture of the pure and the unpure, and then we leave a contradictory view of what Christians are all about, which can lead the naturalist to a contradictory view of what Christianity and even Jesus are all about. But he goes on. Then he goes on to say here, peaceable. Do you produce a sense of peace? Or due to the conflict within, it produces a conflict from without. What, are the, what is the quality of your relationships right now as you examine the scope and the extent of all of this? Shape from above or shape from below? The next word, gentle, means fitting. It means moderate. The next word, open to reason. Carried within the time period in which James wrote in the military, the Roman military, of one who could submit to authority without fighting it. They accepted the fact that those from above had a vantage point that the soldier from below lacked on the battlefields of life. When we began our second church plant in Pittsburgh, uh, started a radio call-in show and occasional uh, messages from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. And as the congregation began to grow, it was fascinating to see how that program was working itself out. But when I began that program, Pam and I quickly realized there's a complexity to the street systems of Pittsburgh unlike anything else we had seen so far because the street system is based upon the three rivers, There's a triangulation there. If you're used to city blocks, squares, rectangles, don't go to Pittsburgh. Because Pittsburgh is chaos, unless you're using your technology, which I didn't have at my disposal at that point in time. But one day, I went high up upon a tower, and I looked down, and I could see the convergence of the streets and the triangulation of the city, and I realized that from that vantage point then, I could have a sense of convergence. Now, what this society needs is a sense of convergence. Globally, why is the Middle East in such turmoil? In particular, why is Jerusalem still the epicenter of it all? Wisdom from above talks about the prophetic still-to-come aspects of what Jesus Christ will do upon his return. But simply the wisdom from below looks at the ethnic groups and looks at the who came first in that land called Israel and tries to decipher the meaning of all of this while lacking the from-above perspective of life. But what you and I do is we understand that the convergence 
from wisdom from above is found at the cross of Jesus Christ and three days later being raised from the dead, therefore capable of fulfilling all that was said, including pertaining to the second coming and the return to that very region that is still in turmoil. It gives new sense of issues such as ISIS and other such matters. Full of mercy and good fruits, as you think of the Good Samaritan. Impartial. In other words, not divided literally in the heart. Finally, sincere. It's without hypocrisy. Those are your characteristics. But what about the results? A mini story. There's this farmer, and this farmer had these lay evangelists appear on his property. And they came up to him, and they were, they were kind of confrontational with their approach, you know the sort. And they challenged him, and they said, are you a Christian? First question. I'm not sure that would be my first question. It would be a question, but where in the sequence of things, you see? We're told that the farmer from the book, The Living Faith, thought for a moment and then said, wait just a minute. And he wrote down a list of names on a tablet, handed it to the lay evangelists. Quote, here's a list of people who know me best. Please ask them if I'm a Christian. Unquote. That's your lead into verse 18, you know. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If there is peace within your heart, it will produce peace, not conflict, among those around you. But if there is continual divide in your heart because you're allowing the below and the above to coexist internally, it's going to create a collision externally, even if it's so-called a Christian collision, quote-unquote, you see. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, and that involves understanding the true source of wisdom. And that's why in Acts chapter 6, when there was this collision taking place, In Jerusalem, what the apostles did was to say, Brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who were to be involved in the care of the people. And God emphasizes this sense of wisdom from above. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things, and the word set has to do with that which is permanent. Fixate it. Not a a simple glance up and then turn your attention to that which is from below but rather set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. How could he miss that wide receiver? Hell. It's because he's down there. We could see it because we're up here. Question. Who and where is the source of your wisdom? Let's stand together. It's when we take your revealed word, that which comes from above, and is then communicated to those of us and all of us who live on the streets of life, that we are able then to get a vantage point that we otherwise would lack. Forgive us when we seek wisdom from below and then Christianize it and call it yours. Help us to draw from you and from that which is from above, your principles, your truth, and be like the wise men that appeared in Bethlehem upon the birth of the Savior and offer our worship in response. For the one that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is found now that they're reaching the limits, and they have not found the solutions that they've been looking for. Show them you've placed eternity in the heart, and it's time to stop looking from below and turn to the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, found above. And for this, We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.